Welcome to Open Spaces. For more Wyoming Public Radio News, I'm Camila Kodalska. Two-thirds into the budget session, we look at why some lawmakers and advocates are frustrated with how it started. The first day we killed 13 committee bills, which was extremely disappointing. One bill that didn't get killed early on would ban most forms of gender-affirming care for minors. Some say the negative impacts could ripple through Wyoming's youth. Legislation like this really uh, drives that fear. And Colorado has released its first set of wolves, but a few actually migrated down a while ago. And the opinion there is more complicated than you'd think. I would love to have them be part of this ecosystem. It's made for it. There aren't that many people. Plus, we hear from author Craig Johnson. Those stories and more coming up on Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. Wyoming Public Radio takes you around Wyoming. Listen for interesting stories from down the long streets and around the state. Around Wyoming, weekday mornings at 6.06 and 8.06, and afternoons at 1.30 and 4.48. If you have a Wyoming story of interest, you can send it to me at iengel at uwyo.edu. Thanks. and I grew up in Pinedale, Wyoming. And by about 10 years old, I came to love public radio. Wyoming Public Radio is the one public radio station for the state. And so Wyoming Public Radio really is the one thing that kind of unifies the whole state and makes us all feel like just one big community. Do you love Wyoming Public Radio? Let us know at wyomingpublicmedia.org. Welcome to Open Spaces. From Wyoming Public Radio News, I'm Camila Kodalska. Every other year, the Wyoming legislature goes into a budget session. That means lawmakers spend four weeks working to pass a balanced state budget. From funding public schools to health care, public safety to facilities, lawmakers weigh the pros and cons of each bill with an eye towards the state's needs, as well as its funding sources. The budget session is unique because bills require a two-thirds majority to make it to the next step. Wyoming Public Radio's David Dudley reports on how an unprecedented number of committee bills were killed this year through that two-thirds majority. It's Wednesday evening, a week and a half into this year's budget session. Lander Representative Lloyd Larson stands on the House floor. He votes on a bill, then runs upstairs toward a meeting room off the House gallery. He wants to talk about the first day of the budget session when lawmakers killed an extraordinary number of bills. The first day we killed 13 committee bills, which was extremely disappointing because um, I think we spent about $600,000 um, on legislative per diem and travel expenses. The number is closer to $680,000. That includes the time and effort that go into building, drafting, and vetting new legislation during the interim. That's the rest of the year when lawmakers are not in session. And we spend all that time putting together what those committees felt like were a good bill, and we've just flushed that down the toilet. Larson says the reason so many bills were killed is that the Wyoming Freedom Caucus, a hardline faction of the GOP, has enough members and allies to defeat bills upon introduction. 
I'm sure in their minds that they felt that for whatever reason that that was the right thing to do. I would argue that and I'd push back and I'd say that that was a mistake. Gillette Representative John Baer is a member of the Wyoming Freedom Caucus. He acknowledges that they are a minority within the legislature, but he believes they represent a majority of Wyomingites. And uh, you've seen an increase in what we call the Wyoming Freedom Caucus, which is a very conservative group looking for common sense, you know, kitchen table uh, type of ideology, you know, just what, what are the people concerned about? That's what we're bringing to the legislature. One of the bills that was killed on the first day by Bear and other House members was the Mental Health Care Redesign Bill. It would have ensured that people living with a severe mental health disorder would have access to crucial services when their insurance companies won't cover them. It would have also helped low-income people who don't have insurance living at or below 200% of the federal poverty line. Those services include treatment for substance abuse disorder, a major driver of suicide, Bear says he voted against the bill because it was trying to solve mental health issues through government action rather than social solutions. Uh, those decisions were, for me personally, were based on spending and expansion of government and uh, whether or not I thought, thought it was really a good solution for the society. Andy Somerville is one of the advocates for that bill. She's the executive director for the Wyoming Association of Mental Health and Substance Abuse Centers. Somerville says that even as Wyoming recently slid from first in the nation to third in per capita suicide rate, there's still much work to be done. I think there's uh, still some stigma around mental health. I think there's some stigma about health care in general that we're still fighting as a state. Hopefully we can move past that. When asked why lawmakers may be reluctant to fund such programs, Somerville says Wyomingites are fiercely independent and that's not likely to change. In Wyoming, in general, we like to, to take care of ourselves. Um, but one of the things that I think we forget about is that we also take care of our neighbors and we take care of our communities. Representative Lloyd Larson agrees with Bear's notion that lawmakers are there to serve voters, but that may be where the agreement ends. Larson says the two-thirds rule gives a minority group of lawmakers the power to decide which bills the majority would consider. Larson says the solution lies in getting more people involved in the process to ensure that their voices are heard. He compares that process to maintaining a car. But if you don't do that, if you aren't paying attention or just intensely neglect that, trying to make your penny stretch a little further, that's when you, you have a blowout going down the icy road. And uh, that's what we don't want to have happen here. While these bills were killed early during this budget session, they may return in next year's legislative session when the two-thirds majority is not needed. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm David Dudley. We're more than halfway through this year's budget session, and measures that critics say intrude on the rights of trans people are advancing. One such bill would ban most forms of gender-affirming care for minors. The Senate passed a similar bill last year, but it died in the House. This year, Wyoming Public Radio's Chris Clements reports the Senate passed Chloe's law again and is hoping the House will too. On a frigid winter day in Cheyenne, lawmakers and Wyomingites file into a wood-paneled committee room underneath the Capitol. They've come to give testimony, or to hear it, on legislation that aims to regulate the medical options available for transgender youth under the age of 18 in the state. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. So uh, what I'm presenting to you is Senate File 99, Chloe's Law, Gender Change Prohibition. 
Uh, this is a... That's Cheyenne Senator Anthony Bouchard, the sponsor of Chloe's Law. It's a ban that would prevent underage Wyoming residents from accessing forms of health care that affirm their gender identity, known as gender-affirming care. It can refer to a wide range of health care services, from social services and psychotherapy to medical procedures. Bouchard and supporters of the ban say they don't consider those treatments to be proper. They say they're worried that some forms of gender-affirming care could be difficult to reverse if people who receive that care later come to regret it. These kids are being kicked to the curb because you have a, a, whole, a whole movement that doesn't even want to listen to, to what's happening there to these, these victims. Opponents of Bouchard's ban emphasize the medical associations and research that have found gender-affirming care to reduce feelings of depression and suicide in an already vulnerable population. They point to data that shows it's rare for people who undergo treatments related to gender identity transitions to later wish they could reverse them. These treatments seek to lessen the feelings of distress that can come when someone's sex assigned at birth doesn't match their gender identity. A smattering of cowboy hats stick out from the crowd as the hearing moves along. My name is Sarah Burlingame. I'm the executive director of Wyoming Equality, and we are unsurprisingly not in support of this bill. Um, for Berlin Game, Chloe's law represents an intrusion by the legislature into difficult conversations usually reserved for parents, their children, and their physicians. She points out the gender transition surgeries for minors that this ban would outlaw are not performed in Wyoming. Not only that, Wyoming equality is also opposed to those types of surgeries for minors. As are all of the best practices in medicine, there is no disagreement on that. The only disagreement is should the Wyoming legislature be able to dictate to Wyoming physicians what level of care that they can provide? Although physicians agree minors should take caution in getting gender transition surgeries, there are other treatments that are helpful, like puberty blockers and hormone therapies. Both would be outlawed under the new statute, and physicians could lose their medical licenses if they administer them or violate any other part of the law. Berlin Game and those opposing the ban worry this would muddy the waters of what kinds of health care physicians can legally provide their patients. It's very troubling to people who are looking to practice medicine in the state of Wyoming. Senator Bouchard says the majority of trans and LGBTQ people in the state aren't interested in stopping the legislation. It just really depends whether they're activists or not. I've talked to people who are gay and they told me that this isn't even their issue. They just want to be left alone as gay people, and they don't think that this fight with the transgender is theirs. When asked about recent Contact Your Legislator events hosted across Wyoming in response to bills like Chloe's Law, Bouchard said, It just depends whether they're cultural Marxists or they just want to be left alone. My name is Daniel Galbraith, and I am the coordinator of the All Coalition, which is supported by Casper Pride. Galbraith is at a Casper Pride event. And I am surrounded by folks who are chatting about the messages they're going to send and writing those messages on some really awesome postcards to send to legislators. Grace Nimatello is a mental health provider in Casper who has patients under the age of 18. She's there because she's worried about how legislation like Chloe's law impacts her patients. Um, a lot of the fear and a lot of the mental health concerns they were experiencing, suicidality, um, fear of not belonging, fear of being targeted, um, legislation like this really uh, drives that fear and it really puts those young, those young folks at risk, really, just to be quite honest. The group has already sent the postcards to their legislators. 
For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Chris Clements. Chloe's law is scheduled for a Monday hearing in the House Judiciary Committee. If it passes three readings in the House, it will head to the governor's desk next. Wolves are trouble for ranchers, but their opinion on whether wolves should be reintroduced to Colorado is complicated. That's up next on Open Spaces. for the newsroom from the BBC and we'll bring you a fresh and lively look at what's happening in the world. Using our extensive network of correspondents, we take you to the story as it breaks. Get the facts and hear the experts on the newsroom from the BBC. Weeknights at 7 on Wyoming Public Radio, followed by Classical Wyoming from 8 to 11. Cheyenne Roundup is back for the 67th legislature's budget session. Join Wyoming Public Media and Wildfowl reporters for a weekly look at the problem-solving and power struggles at Wyoming State House. Every Monday of the session, starting February 12th, we'll preview the legislative week ahead, what bills have died, and what's still kicking. Find it wherever you get your podcast or tune in to Wyoming Public Radio on Monday afternoons or Tuesday mornings. Welcome back to Open Spaces. A recent decision to reintroduce wolves has created division between rural and urban Coloradans. But wolves have actually been there a while. A few years ago, a couple migrated down from Wyoming to settle in the mountain valley of North Park, southwest of Laramie. It's given the ranchers there a head start on adjusting to a new reality. Wyoming Public Radio's Melody Edwards went to hear the community's complicated feelings about wolves. As soon as I climb out of the car, longtime North Parker Gail Woodson points out a coyote jogging away from her animal rescue ranch. Oh, there's one right there now. Oh, yeah, I can see it walking across the meadow over there. Not only coyotes come on her land, but also wolves. And she has good reason to worry about wolves attacking her animals. I have mostly rescues Mm. and retired animals. So I have animals that are not well. I have animals that are really, really old. And they've been traumatized in the past, and so they're very, actually very vulnerable. Her ranch has llamas, donkeys, horses, you name it. They're so vulnerable that predators are drawn here. That's why she keeps a big, shaggy, black-and-white guard dog named Athena, who just got done chasing off those coyotes a minute ago. At one point, North Park hosted a pack of eight wolves, but most of them were killed, crossing into Wyoming, where it's legal to shoot them. Now there are just two left, the father and a son. You might think Woodsome would be anti-wolf, but even though she's afraid for her llamas... I would love to have them be part of this ecosystem. It's made for it. There there aren't that many people, and I think it can improve the, the health and size of our other herds. Like elk, deer, bighorn sheep, 
Woodson proves that there's a lot of mixed opinions about these predators. But she doesn't think Colorado voters should have decided to reintroduce the species. She says rural people already feel disrespected and unheard. I think wolves represent a lot of what farming and ranching is about, which is like you have no control ultimately. Rancher Philip Anderson's family is definitely feeling that lack of control. Last fall, the younger wolf killed three of his sheep. Loading up some cows to send to Nebraska to some corn stalks for winter feed and uh, went out to check some uh, supplement tubs that I had out and there was those three lambs laying there tore up. And Anderson wishes that Colorado Parks and Wildlife would give ranchers access to the two wolves' exact location at all times. Colorado recently approved a rule which allows ranchers to kill a wolf if they can prove it harassed their livestock or attacked a human. But the burden of proof is still on the rancher. One year of prison, $100,000 fine. Loss of your hunting rights for life. Now, that's, that's, a, that's a pretty big hammer, isn't yes. it? It's a pretty big hammer. Anderson says if Colorado doesn't find a way to better collaborate with landowners, they might not help with future wildlife projects. Eric O'Dell is the Wolf Conservation Program Manager for Colorado Parks and Wildlife. He says the agency had no control over the decision to reintroduce wolves. It's a decision that the voters made, and as a state agency, we're implementing the state statute. O'Dell says he's heard the complaints that this was a decision made by urban voters and imposed on rural communities. He says it helps that Colorado has been more than generous with its compensation for livestock killed by wolves, giving the fair market value up to $15,000. On a frosty morning, rancher Marcy Gruber shows me her three guard dogs that she adopted to protect her sheep from wolves. The oldest sleeps among the flock. He's 12 years old, and he's also a great parent. Aww. And he's really good with the sheep and the chickens. Hi, and what's his name? Vasily. And he's wearing a special collar here. This is um, a collar for when the wolves come by. Uh-huh. And they actually all have them. They've got, they've got kind of spikes yes. uh, sticking out all mm -hmm. around. Yep. Apparently, the wolves go for the neck first. Uh -huh. So this is to get, at least help him have a fighting chance. So far, the guard dogs have kept wolves from attacking. Gruber grew up in the city, but had a lifelong desire to live in the country. But she says the arrival of wolves is a threat to that dream. She's probably seen wolves 10 or more times in the valley since they migrated in in 2019. She says the wolves could become a deal-breaker for her. I just wouldn't want to subject our animals to that. It wouldn't be fair to them, and I don't want to see it. I don't want to go to jail because I was defending my animals. So at that point, it would be time to, to sell them. Gruber says it feels like urban folks have forgotten where their food comes from. She says if enough ranchers like her end up leaving ranching, it would be a great loss since they also protect the open spaces of the West from development. We have hunters come in every fall and they say this all the time, this is God's country. And they marvel at just the scenery, the beauty, the peace, the quiet. And I would just hate to see that go. Colorado plans to release about 10 wolves a year for the next three to five years. The first set was released 
just over the mountain from North Park. From Wyoming Public Radio News, I'm Melody Edwards. This story was part of our ongoing I Respectfully Disagree series. To see more, visit our website, wyomingpublicmedia.org. You can also hear a longer podcast version on this story on the Modern West podcast coming up in April. Find it on our website under podcasts. Many farmers across our region grow alfalfa, which is dried into hay and fed to beef and dairy cattle, but it requires a lot more water than most crops. Now researchers are working on new technologies to reduce the amount farmers use. Still, some say allowing them to grow such a thirsty crop in the arid west is the problem. The Mountain West News Bureau's Caleb Radel reports. It's a chilly overcast day in Reno and Alejandro Andrade Rodriguez is walking across a tiny field surrounded by city streets and single-family homes. This is a test field run by the University of Nevada, Reno. The agriculture professor walks by an irrigation pivot and points at the low-hanging sprinklers dangling above green alfalfa. They're equipped with sensors he developed. With those sensors, we monitor how how much water is being consumed by the crop, and we also determine how much water we need to provide to the soil. He says traditional irrigation pivots spray every part of a field with the same amount of water, but farmland can have different soil types and elevations. You may have in a certain part of the field one soil that that retains more water for a longer time. The sensors and accompanying software allow farmers to see in real time when to alter the amount of water they're spraying. It's called precision irrigation management. This alfalfa isn't getting watered today. That'll happen come spring. If we have right now the irrigation system running, like pipes might freeze and and it it will be no good whatsoever. (laughs) Andrade Rodriguez is leading the university's role in a three-year project, receiving nearly $750,000 from the U.S. Department of Agriculture. The federal agency's research center in Texas is testing the technology on cotton, and the University of California Davis is using it on corn. It's trying to reduce the amount of water that is used right now while still helping to produce that food in an inexpensive way, in an affordable way. Conservationists argue many farming areas use water faster than it can be replenished by winter storms. Take northern Nevada's Walker River Basin. It's blanketed with alfalfa fields, and water supplies have been drying up for decades. Peter Stanton is the director of the Walker Basin Conservancy. I'm very skeptical of proposed solutions that don't involve permanent changes in the amount of water we're using to grow grass in the desert. And the amount available fluctuates due to climate change, he adds. We have seen just dramatic changes in how wet the wet years are and how dry the dry years are. Another issue, close to 20% of alfalfa produced in the West was shipped overseas in 2022. That's according to an industry analysis of federal data. We're literally then exporting water. Ann Schechinger is an agricultural economist for the nonpartisan Environmental Working Group. It's true that, you know, this water is being used to grow alfalfa so that people can have hamburgers. But there's so much more water going to alfalfa in the West than people drink and use in their house. At what cost are we willing to have burgers every day? 
Agriculture leaders say many Western farms would struggle to stay in business if they stopped growing alfalfa. That's the case in Nevada, says J.J. Goykachia, the state's agriculture director. There's a lot of soil in Nevada that won't grow anything else. Some of these areas you can't grow produce. you got a really narrow window as far as the growing season goes. Federal data shows there are more than 790,000 acres of irrigated farmland in Nevada. Nearly half of it is planted with alfalfa, the state's top cash crop. In 2022, production of it raked in $385 million for farmers. Some of these rural counties, they would not be economically whole if it was not for hay and predominantly alfalfa production. Back at the test field in Reno, Andrade Rodriguez says farmers irrigating alfalfa and other water-intensive crops play a crucial role in the global food system, and cutting back irrigation drastically would have big consequences. We will have to find a way to, let's say, import that food or produce that food using much less water. And we don't have that right now. His sensors and software aim to change that. He hopes to make the technology free for farmers to use, and the research team would hold workshops to teach them how. For the Mountain West News Bureau, I'm Caleb Radel. Joint, a classic western winter competition, but with warming winters, will it survive? This is Open Spaces. In the middle of winter, a wildfire flares up and consumes whole neighborhoods outside of Boulder, Colorado. It turns Ariel's childhood home into ash and rubble. Fire outside. We're evacuating. The Burn Scar, season seven of The Modern West. Binge all five episodes plus two bonuses. Find them under podcasts at wyomingpublicmedia.org, sponsored by the Argosy Foundation. If you're searching for a break from the news, look no further than Wyoming Public Media. We provide three music channels for whatever may be your taste or mood. Classical Wyoming, Jazz Wyoming, and Wyoming Sounds. You can find them all on a variety of platforms for listening, including streaming, Wyoming Public Radio app, smart speakers, and FM radio. Just go to wyomingpublicmedia.org and listen. Welcome back to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Camila Kadalska. The year is 1949, and some skiers and cowboys were at a bar in Leadville, Colorado. Naturally, the conversation went to who's fastest, so they decided to see about it. But as a team, the cowboys pulled the skiers on their horses down Main Street, and that's how what we know today as ski joring began, at least according to the legend. Over the years, the sport has gained traction, bringing in lots of money and visitors to small Rocky Mountain communities during winter. But as Wyoming Public Radio's Caitlin Tan reports, 
this all depends on snow. And this year, it's been tricky. Take a listen. All right, folks, here we go. Make a little noise. Hundreds of people came out to watch Looks the ski drawing like in Pinedale on a recent weekend. Looking good, guys. Looking good. Let's go, buddy. Let's go. A skier whips around a turn going at least 30 miles an hour, bracing himself for a huge jump. A powerful brown horse and rider with a cowboy hat are barreling down a flat, snowy track, pulling the skier by a thick rope. You got it, buddy. You got it. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Cheer him on, folks. That's a good one. The ski drawing is the main event of Pinedale's annual winter carnival, and it takes place at the local rodeo grounds. And this year, the snow is sparse, and you can see dirt and sagebrush lining the ski drawing course. This year, come middle of January, it was getting a little stressful. We were starting to sweat it, wondering if we were going to be able to pull it off. Monty Bulgiano is one of the main organizers of the event. He says they pulled the ski drawing off by the skin of their teeth and a trusty snowplow. They scraped every square inch of the rodeo grounds with all three inches that were on the ground and we were able to make enough to have a course built over there. And making this event happen is huge for the economy. Bulgiano grew up here watching industries like energy wax and wane. In a small community like Pinedale, outside of the little bit of industry that we have here, we are relying on tourism. But during the winter, it's desolate and less people visit. So an event like Winter Carnival? Get uh, hotels filled up and restaurants filled up and just make it a fun, exciting weekend. And the conundrum of holding snow-dependent events on a low snow year has rippled across the state this year. Saratoga had to bring in 171 dump truck loads of snow from outside of town to build their ski drawing track. But other communities weren't so lucky. Both Gillette and Sheridan had to cancel their ski drawing events. By the time it came to, to make the call on ski drawing and some of our other events, it was pretty simple. There was no snow and it was 55, 60 degrees a week before the event. Sean Parker heads up travel and tourism in Sheridan. He says it was pretty hard on local businesses, which depend on the huge turnout. 2019 was the first year they held ski drawing. According to Parker, the town saw more people in one day than they do all month in February. It's a big deal. I mean, we you go from nothing to something and, and any positive economic stimulus helps. Parker says millions are spent in the community. And this year, they still held concerts and a hockey tournament, but it wasn't the same. We need ski drawing to see the really big positive impacts. Parker says if there's more winters like this, they'd consider moving the ski drawing to the mountains where there's more snow. Back at the Pinedale Ski Drawing parking lot, horses are tied at trailers, and local skier Sean Boylan stands at his pickup in snow pants and cowboy boots holding skis. And a modello, yeah, helps with the nerves, because you do get nervous. But Boylan won this race last year, and this year he was worried whether the race would even happen. But at the end of the day, it's kind of just a rowdy time, so if you're skiing through mud, like, oh well. It's all good fun. So he gets his racing stuff ready. Rubber gardening gloves to grip 30-foot rope with the carabiner on it. That goes on to the rigging of your saddle. Then it's just a set of GS skis. Boylan is skiing behind horse rider John Hyde. Hyde sports a handlebar mustache and perfectly circled sunglasses. Hyde lives and breathes ski joring. You get old, you retire from rodeos. It's just something to do in the winter besides snowmobile. Have horses, may as well use them. And this now is their home on the road. 
Hyde spends thousands of dollars in Rocky Mountain communities between gas, food, entry fees, but it's worth it for him because, well, he likes to win. And there's hundreds, if not thousands of dollars to be won. So Hyde plops his leather saddle on his big bay horse named Perry. He cinches the saddle tight, but before Hyde and Perry head to the course, Hyde's hot tip for winning? I don't know. Hmm. I guess just go like hell. In fact, Hyde is planning the first ski joring at his ranch about 15 miles south of Pinedale, hoping to continue to bring money and people to the area. But it's all dependent on the snow. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Caitlin Tan in Pinedale. Hiking up a mountain with a 90-pound backpack may not sound like fun, but that's exactly what a group of skiers did on the night of February 18th in Jackson. They were commemorating a climb by the U.S. Army's 10th Mountain Division, an event that helped end World War II. Jackson Hole Community Radio's Hannah Mersbach reports. It's nearly 7 on this stormy, frigid winter night. Eight guys in a rainbow of puffy jackets are on the top of Wyoming's Teton Pass, where the elevation is about 8,000 feet. Their goal, climbing more than 1,600 to the top of Mount Glory and skiing down. That's maxing out. (laughs) They're trying to get close to that magic number of 90 pounds, the weight that the 10th Mountain Division carried in their trainings. Caleb Hunger steps up to the scale, but he needs help lifting his pack. Max is 75? 75, yeah. Oh, cool. Should be about 80. <laughs> about 80. You want 10 more? No. Hunger's big black pack looks like it's bursting at the seams. It's filled with gallon jugs of water and heavy climbing gear. Strapped to the outside are a pair of skis and two firearms, just for show. We've got some Germans on top with, uh, <laughs> with guns. That joking voice belongs to Christian Beckwith, who's organizing the evening Sufferfest. He says their climb commemorates a World War II milestone by a division that specialized in cold weather and mountainous terrain. Comprised of an awful lot of the country's best climbers and skiers. Beckwith says on this night in 1945, 10,000 soldiers climbed what's called Riva Ridge under darkness. It's part of an Italian mountain range where Germans were stationed as part of the Gothic Line, a series of fortified summits and ridges. They took the Germans completely by surprise, and in taking Riva Ridge, they really opened the way to breaking the Gothic Line, and they precipitated the German surrender of Italy, and that hastened the end of the war. Beckwith knows all this because he hosts a podcast on the subject. 90-pound rucksack. Story of the 10th Mountain Division and the dawn of outdoor recreation in America. A longtime mountaineer, he wanted to know more about the history of climbing in the Tetons and found that many of the members of the Mountain Division climbed in the region before the war and came back after. They fanned back out into the mountains that they'd fallen in love with when they were training. And so that resulted in an explosion in skiing and in climbing post-war. 
He says they helped start about 65 ski areas across the country, including Vail and Aspen in Colorado and Snow King nearby in Jackson. And they helped start the Jenny Lake Rangers rescue team in Grand Teton National Park. They developed, you know, the fitness of mountain athletes, but then also the camaraderie um, that we call the Fellowship of the Rope. So they had an incredible esprit de corps. Get a hand with the pack. What's up? Oh, hand with the pack, yeah. Wyatt Sullivan helps Beckwith put his pack on. Sullivan just got back from college and is much closer to the age of the soldiers that night. Some of them were just out of high school. What does the 10th mean to him? It's a badassery and make and do with what you got. I think elected suffering night is the best we can do to commemorate, to, to really try and mimic their suffering. In their honor, Sullivan says he has eight two-gallon jugs of water in his pack, all of which he plans to pour out at the top before the ski back down. He steps up to the scale next. Let's see. I think we're going to break it. That's almost 90. Let's go, the 90-pound rucksack! <laughs> and with that, the group sheds their warm, puffy jackets for what's sure to be a sweaty hike up Mount Glory. A fitting name, according to Beckwith. The call sign for the 10th Mountain Division is Climb to Glory, so this is somewhat appropriate. At the same time, similar hikes happened at Ski Cooper, Colorado, where the 10th Mountain Division learned to ski, and at another training location outside Lake Placid in New York. To keep the memory of these men alive, Beckwith hopes more mountain communities take part next year. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Hannah Mersbach in Jackson. Up next, a conversation with author Craig Johnson, who wrote the Longmire series that later became a hit Netflix original series. Stay with us. This is Open Spaces. All six episodes of Human Nature's latest season are out right now. That's right. Season nine of our award-winning podcast has a little bit of everything. A Wyoming man who spent his summer working as a night shepherd in Switzerland. All I could hear was my breathing and the steps and everything was so dark. And I just thought, okay, this must be what it's like to be an astronaut on the moon. The story of one of the biggest animal rescues in history. And I picked up the phone and they said, when can you get here? And so the next day, I actually took a plane because it never occurred to me what was ahead for me over the next few weeks. And a woman who followed the gray whale migration hundreds of miles with her son. I was exhausted one evening, fed up of trying to work. I'd had a really bad day. And so I was like, right, I'm not working. I'm, I'm going to read about whales. Find Human Nature on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's Human Nature, one word, one N. You already listen to public radio, but what if public radio could listen back? It does on the NPR One app. Hear local, national, and international news plus podcasts based on what you like. The more you listen, the more it gets to know you. Download NPR One at your app store. Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Camila Kadelska. 
Craig Johnson is the New York Times bestselling author of The Longmire Mysteries, the basis for the hit Netflix original series, Longmire. He's the recipient of the Western Writers of America Spur Award for Fiction, and his novella Spirit of Steamboat was the first One Book Wyoming selection, where the same book is read and discussed throughout the state. He lives in Newcross, Wyoming. Wyoming Public Radio's Grady Kirkpatrick spoke with Johnson. The Walt Longmire Mysteries, a series of Western mystery novels, was first published in 2004. The stories are set in a fictional town and county in Wyoming that follows the life and times of Sheriff Walt Longmire, along with an interesting cast of characters. I'm happy to welcome author Craig Johnson. Welcome, Craig. Thanks, Grady. Good to be here. Your next novel in the Longmire series, First Frost, is due out May 28th. It looks to be unique among the series in that the majority <laughs> of the story goes back in time following Walt Longmire's and Henry Standing Bear's graduation from college. There have been references to their past in other books, but I expect this will illuminate the details of that time. Can you give us a preview? Yeah, it's it's one of those crossroads, you know, in their lives like that. And uh, it was funny like that because I was talking to a good friend of mine like that who uh, explained to me like that because I'd never understood, you know, why it is like that. We we change when, when exactly it is we change, you know, our, our summer palm leaf hats over to our wool hats. And he looked at me and he goes, well, first frost. And I was like, well, now that's a title to a book, right? Yes. That's what that is. <laughs> and uh, actually, the the book, yeah, the majority of it takes place in 1964. And uh, what it is is uh, Walt and Henry graduate from their respective colleges out there in uh, California. Walt from USC, where he majored in football, and Henry from Berkeley, where he majored in revolution. <laughs> and uh, they they get ready to go on this massive road trip you know they but they lose their deferments like that and uh kind of read the writing on the wall like that uh with the draft coming uh for vietnam like that and uh henry's supposed to report to ford polk in louisiana like that and walt is supposed to report to paris island um off the coast of south carolina and it leads to this epic um route 66 uh you know, road trip, you know, in 1964 on the Mother Road, like that. And, uh, of course, the, the question is, is like, how far do they get before they get into trouble? And, of course, the answer is not very far at all. <laughs> I'll bet. Um, they, they barely get out of California and into Arizona before they get into trouble. Yeah. So it'll uh, it'll be something exciting, I think, for people to, to read. Um, it's very telling of, like, you know, who these guys were you know, all those years ago and, uh, and, and, and how they, they changed over the years and, and how these things that uh, happened to them um, in this particular uh, portion of their lives had an effect. Yeah. Both Walt and Henry served in Vietnam. Have you received a lot of feedback on the series from veterans who've served in the military? I have. I have. They didn't use a lot of that uh, in the actual television show Longmire. Um, they kind of intimated, you know, that they had had uh, military history, but didn't go into it into uh, a great deal of detail. I mean, mm-hmm. I've got entire books. Like, I mean, uh, Another Man's Moccasins, the fourth book in the series, you know, the majority of that book actually takes place in 1968 um, during the Tet Offensive in Vietnam when Walt's a Marine investigator, one of the first Marine investigators. Up until 1968, they were pretty much muscle for Navy investigators like that, but then they started having their own detectives. Uh, and Walt was one of the very first ones. Like that. And it was fun to get in touch, you know, with the archives, you know, for the Marine Corps back in D.C. like that because I was asking them all these questions about the, the first detectives, and they were like, how did you know about that? 
<laughs> I said, well, I'm kind of working on this character, and I'm thinking he's probably going to be one of the first Marine investigators um, during the Tet Offensive in 1968. Wow. And we, you know, started working on it, and uh, it, it turned out to be a, a really kind of revelatory book like that, which is always what I'm looking for. I'm always looking for some way to do something different. Um, you know, I, I've, I've, I've said before that I don't ever want to have Walt on a cruise ship. <laughs> I don't ever want to have Walt, you know, uh, chasing al-Qaeda in Crook County. I mean, I want him dealing with things, you know, the Western sheriffs deal with. You know, there's, there's a reality there. I mean, especially, you know, when you have a, a very strong, you know, Wyoming-based audience, um, they can kind of sniff out the BS pretty quick, you know, mm-hmm. whenever they're, they're reading your books or, you know, watching your TV shows or things and thinking, there's no way that would ever happen here. Like that. And so, you know, I want to make sure, like that, that I'm, you know, uh, respectful, you know, to my reading audience and to my home. You know, it's, it's one of the things that when you write about a place, one of the, the demands that it makes is that maybe you should be honest about it, you know, kind of important. Yeah. There always seems to be some interesting nuance within the stories and characters. It's rarely just straightforward. Was that something you made a point to include in your stories initially? Oh, absolutely. Like, I mean, you always want to write the books in layers, um, you know, because a lot of people read you know, different books for different reasons. And so you need to satisfy, you know, a lot of those, those different uh, tastes. And so, you know, and the other thing is, is like, I mean, you know, if somebody gets, picks up one of my books, I get what they're going to spend, what, a couple of days, a week, maybe, you know, a couple of weeks, like at reading that book. I'm going to spend a year writing that book. And so it better be really interesting to me, you know, uh, you know, to hold my attention for that kind of, you know, of a period of time. Um, you know, just to, to use uh, this year's book, you know, The Longmire Defense, I, I had introduced, you know, the, the character of Walt's grandfather, who he learned a great deal about and from. And, uh, you know, there was a, a great deal of animosity in that relationship. And I always wanted to go back and find out, you know, what was the what was the kernel of that? Where did that start? What was the catalyst of this antagonistic kind of relationship that he had with his grandfather? And, and was it really the way that Walt remembered it? Was it a little bit different maybe now that he's gotten a little bit older? I mean, I always love that that great phrase from Mark Twain where he said, you know, I always thought, you know, when I was in my 20s, I thought my father was an idiot. And then I got into being in my 40s and I thought, couldn't believe how smart the old guy had gotten. You know? <laughs> <laughs> right. The majority of the stories are based in Wyoming, a little bit in Montana, one in Mexico and one mm-hmm. in Philadelphia, where Walt's undersheriff, <laughs> the feisty Italian Victoria Moretti is from. Was Philadelphia a random selection for a city outside of Wyoming for the stories, or is there a a Philly-Wyoming connection? Well, we've got uh, two daughters and a granddaughter who live in, Phil- in the Philadelphia region. Like, and so, uh, and that was where I actually met my wife when I was doing graduate work. And so, that that city's always held a, a special, uh, you know, kind of place in my heart. Like that, and uh, you know, in that book, the third book, uh, kind of goes unpunished. The reasoning behind that was is that you know, Westerners, you know, in the in the you know the uh, environs of the West are one thing, but Westerners in the environs of the of a, of a large Eastern city are something a little bit different. It's not that it hadn't been done before. I, mean, I think there was a Clint Eastwood movie called Coogan's Bluff. Oh, yeah. There was even a, a television show called McLeod, you know, where these cowboys, you know, are in the big city. But they always kind of treated the, the cowboy character as kind of a buffoon. And, you know, I've always thought, you know, Walt Longmire is kind of a world-class detective. I mean, he's a regular Sherlock Holmes, Hercule Poirot, so he can kind of hold his own. And in this book, it was, you know, kind of a challenge to make sure that it was done properly and with the, the amount of respect that I have for the character to make sure that, you know, Walt goes up against the sixth largest, you know, police department in the United States. And you know what? 
he does pretty well. Like he's pretty good at what it is that he does. Like and so that was a that was another one. That was a uh, just another opportunity to kind of like take Walt maybe in a different area, you know, and do something a little bit different. I mean, whenever I was first thinking about you know doing this series of books twenty years ago or even longer than that. You know, I was thinking about it, and I thought, okay, well, you know, most of the the you know crime fiction at that period in time was very noir. It was all you know, alcoholic divorce detectives burying bodies in their backyards, you know, in the big cities or something. And so I thought, well, what if you had the sheriff of the least populated county in the least populated state? That would be something that would be you know very very different, you know, than than what everybody's doing nowadays. And then the thing that I didn't take into consideration, of course, is how many people can you kill in the least po- populated county? County in the least populated state before it starts getting a little bit ridiculous, and so that's when I started doing Walt kind of like a ball team. Um, he's kind of home and away uh, all the way through the series. Like he's, you know, okay. I'll, I'll have him in Absaroka County at one point, and then he'll be like in another part of Wyoming or up in Montana or over in South Dakota, um, you know, or even Philadelphia or Vietnam in 1968. Like I had to kind of spread things out a little bit, you know, and make it a little bit more believable that he would have, you know, the kind of uh, um, you know, antagonists, you know, that he comes up against, you know, in a regular basis. It's uh, it's a little bit more believable that way in my in my estimation. I'm talking with Craig Johnson, author of the Longmire series. It was picked up for a crime drama television series, which premiered in 2012. Was that a big surprise when you got the call on that? Oh, it was. I mean, I questioned their sanity. Whether you know, a TV show about the sheriff, as I said, of the least populated county and state, you know, would uh, you know would work? Like, and uh, they said, well, we've got we're, we're, we've got some ways. You know, we think that this will actually work. Like, and uh, and it was kind of nice because the producers were really wonderful folks who had done a lot of really incredible shows, and uh, you know, and they they had some really strong ideas about you know how this should be done and and doing it the right way like that and. Uh, it, it was quite a surprise, I have to admit. Like, and then we were the highest-rated scripted drama, you know, in uh, on the, the cable network uh, that we were on, which was A and E, um, for about three years. And then something horrible happened. They decided they wanted to buy the show from Warner Brothers, who wouldn't sell it, and so they canceled the show, a very popular show. Mm-hmm. And then it got picked up by Netflix. Like, and I don't know. I'm, <laughs> you know, quadrupled its audience at that point in time. Like, it became one of the best, uh, you know, it's still, you know, one of the best viewed shows on uh, on Netflix on an every other week basis. And, uh, you know, and then, of course, after three years of that, something terrible happened, and Netflix came to Warner Brothers and said, we want to buy Longmire. And they said, well, we didn't sell it to A&E, we're not going to sell it to you. And I think in the back of their minds, they had this idea that we have this little Indian cowboy show, and it's good, but, you know, it'll fade away after a few years with no more new episodes. And well, that was seven years ago. Like oh, that. boy. And it's still, you know, just, you know, going right along, picking up, you know, picking up, uh, you know, viewers. And uh, we seem to be kind of trapped in our own success, you know. But, uh, you know, hey, there are worse things that could happen. At the beginning of every episode, there's a little blip up there for about five seconds that says, based on the novels by Craig Johnson. And I, I couldn't buy, you know, uh, publicity like that. That's it's great. handy. There's also been an event that takes place in Buffalo, Wyoming, nearly every year, Longmire Days. It's been uh, very popular for your fans and well-attended. And besides the great storytelling and the mystery solving, what do you think it is about the uh, Longmire series that has attracted so many people, not just here in Wyoming, but around the world? Well, we've been extraordinarily fortunate, like in the sense that you know we, like I said, got some really fantastic, you know, producers and directors, and and then to top it all off, we got some really fantastic actors, and uh, 
you know, they've, 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 a lot of them have gone on to do, you know, incredible works. I mean, Zon McLaren and like it on Dark Winds and, um, you know, all the shows that he's involved with, for goodness sake, Fargo and all the others, you know, and Katie Sackhoff, you know, with the Star Wars things that she's doing. And uh, Robert Taylor, you know, is consistently working, you know, just about all the time like that. And uh, Lou Diamond Phillips. I mean, we, we really, you know, drew a, a good hand of cards uh to to do that particular show like that and uh it it has a it, it struck a chord i think with a lot of people i think the other thing is is that um it kind of goes to the core of who Walt Longmire is i mean you know there's a lot of stuff as i've said you know that i see television shows and 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 you know books and things that i i don't think are particularly honest you know about who and what we are and i like to think that Walt is you know and whenever anybody asks me for a one word description of Walt Longmire, it's always decent. Decent is the term that I use like that. And I'm not ashamed of Walt. You know, when people watch the TV show or, you know, the books have been translated into a couple of dozen languages, whenever they read the books, I'm not ashamed of him. Like, I feel like he's an honest representation, you know, of who we here in the northern Rocky Mountain West are. I mean, he's intelligent, he's insightful, he's well-read, he's um, dogged, uh, he's tough. Um, but he's also kind and even-handed and justified in what it is that he does. Um, he's just a decent guy like that. And uh, I think people really kind of respond to that type of thing these days. I think that, uh, you know, the, the anti-hero thing has been great, but it's sure been going on for an awfully long time. And so I think everybody was kind of ready for maybe just a, a blue uh, a blue ribbon, you know, straight-ahead good guy. First Frost, the next book in the Longmire series, due out May 28th. I want to thank Craig Johnson. It's been a pleasure. Oh, absolutely mine. All mine. Thank you. That's it for Open Spaces. Thanks for listening. The entire show and all the stories you heard here can be found on our website at wyomingpublicmedia.org. It can also be found wherever you get your podcasts. And we post all our stories on the station's social media platforms. Thanks to Caitlin Tan, our producer, Ivy Engel, our digital producer, and Eric V. Hill, our social media manager for today's show. Open Spaces is a production of Wyoming Public Radio News.